welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. Welcome to Offwatch. The Ocean Race has evolved a lot since it started in 1973 as the Whitbread Round the World Race. And one thing that's changed is a healthy regard for what it would mean to ask the sailors to sail into the ice flows. Since the 2005-06 edition, we saw the introduction of an ice gate, something to limit the sailors' exposure to the icebergs. But one of the sailors certainly had already caught the bug. Skip Novak, who's my guest this week, has been a four-time competitor in the race and is now someone who spends as much time as the season will allow exploring at those extreme latitudes. He's got some incredible stories to tell and we hope you enjoy it. Skip Novak is one of the ocean race's legends, not just because he's done the race four times, but also who those campaigns has been with. At the tender age of 25, he navigated King's Legend to second place in the 77-78 edition after having beers with the right person at the right time in a cow's bar. He's also sailed with world-famous pop stars as part of Drum and Fazizi, a boat that started the 89-90 edition representing the Soviet Union, but at the finish line was very much an international affair after witnessing the collapse of the Berlin Wall. But racing is only one side of Skip's persona. He spent the last 30 years of his life exploring the Southern Ocean, a part of the world that most round the world yacht sailors can't wait to leave. With two specialist, ice-hardened, storm-proof specialist yachts, he's been able to explore at a pace that most racing teams simply don't allow. So, Skip, thank you very much for, for joining me today for this interview. Thanks very much, Neil. Good to be here. So let me start off with that, because this is one of the big conundrums for me. Most of the people that I've spoken to with these interviews talk about the Southern Ocean with a respect. But like I say, they want to get out of there. And those ones that do come back try and minimize the amount of time that they spend down there as possible. What is it that they are missing? What What is it that has taken someone like you and it's got a hold on you? Why do you... Um, enjoy being down there so often? Well, I mean, you know, the maritime part of the Southern Ocean is one thing. And surely on, on the round the world races, you know, by the time you get to Cape Horn, you've had a gutful of uh, the cold uh, iceberg risk, uh, all sorts of dramas going on. And you can't wait to turn the corner and get up into the Atlantic. It's like being in a mill pond, you know, a very psychological mill pond. And uh, but, you know, for me, the the attraction really was to, you know, after my racing career was to go down south to access all these subantarctic islands and Tierra del Fuego behind Cape Horn and Antarctic Peninsula and South Georgia, all these sort of places that I often sailed by and wondered about. And then this is all pre, you know, Internet. So it was very hard to get any information on these places, what it was like and what was there and uh, what you could do there. And so I wanted to find out for myself. And that's, you know, one thing led to the other. And I wound up going down in the late 80s and I'm still going down, still super enthusiastic, still plenty of things to do, plenty of places to go. I haven't been. And and we should probably point out that, I mean, you are right now preparing to go out there again. Yeah, I'm actually, uh, you know, it's not a very photo photogenic background. That's a ceiling of a hotel room in Cape Town you're looking at there. <laughs> And I've um, four days away from finishing a two-week quarantine uh, in a hotel in Cape Town with uh, eleven other people, uh, with the Royal Soci Society for Protection of Birds (RSPB). We're going down to Gough Island on my big boat, Pelagic Australis, to 
do a, um, a, a vanguard team to start a mice eradication project on the island. Gulf Island's a little outlier south-southeast of Tristan Nakuna. You know, a lot of the boats sail very close by to it on the way to Cape Town on various around-the-world races. And uh, I've never been to golf, and you know, another golden opportunity to go to some place I haven't been. So let's just have a look at that, because um, you said you sort of retired your racing career, uh, but you obviously didn't retire from a life at sea. So is it the, you know, the adventure is obviously still something that gets you up in the morning and still drives you. What was it about the, the racing side of it that you'd gone, I've got my fill? That aspect of it I can leave behind. Uh, well, I think, you know, it was, a, it was a combination of a crossover because after the drum race with Duran uh, Duran and Simon and all that, you know, we built my first boat, Pelagic, the 54-footer in Southampton. That was sort of a came out of the drum crew. You know, Patrick Banfield designed the boat, Phil Wade and I and Chuck, my old friend from Chicago, put money into that. And I built the boat in uh, Ocean Village at the time. And uh, so I was already headed in that direction. But of course, the racing career didn't end because I wound up on Fazisi in 89-90. And then, of course, sailing the Maxi Cats with uh, Bruno Brown in the late 90s. So I sort of flipped from one to the other. And they sort of coincided because I was doing my Southern Ocean expedition career on the Southern Summers. And then on the Southern um, or the Northern Summers, I was sailing the Maxi Cats in the late 90s up until the race in 2001. So, so it was great. But, you know, the to answer your question about the end of the racing career, you know, I'd done four Whitbread races. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, I was from one generation and I knew that you could, it was obvious what was happening in the Whitbread was being, you know, basically rightly so taken over by very good dinghy sailors, Olympians, uh, America's Cup caliber sailors, and sort of the, the era of the deep watermen even though there was a crossover, was sort of at an end. And I was, you know, I wasn't a spring chicken either back then either. I did the race in 2001. I was 50. And um, so I thought, you know, this is a good time to hang up my hat. And plus, you know, trying to raise the money for all these campaigns. And I've never been really that well funded uh, besides the drum campaign. That's always a struggle. And you, you have this sort of uncertainty going from one project to the next and to, you know, uh, in the mix was a family beginning, and I thought I better have some sort of continuity, even though Southern Ocean sailing and expedition sailing, what I do is most people wouldn't look at it as anything continuous. It's pretty, you know, pretty crazy, but it was a steady trade, and I built up a business on the back of those first expedition trips, and now we have the two boats, and we're building another one in Holland, um, and we found a niche, you know, which is still I'm absolutely passionate about you know, with what you do now, you give people access to this incredible part of the of the planet, which is so important for so many reasons and so awe inspiring. Um, but in a a lot of your campaigns that you've done for the ocean race, there was also some teams that you thought, well, that's not a typical team. I mean, I mentioned the Soviet Union before, but also Drum. You know, Simon Le Bon, Duran Duran. This is a well famous pop star, not somebody that you would have thought would be making an easy transition into a round-the-world yacht sailor. Is it, I mean, can you just sort of silence any critics or indeed, can you sort of confirm the rumours? Was Simon there as a someone to say, oh, look, I want to do this, it'd be really cool, I'd like to wear the badge? Or when you were putting that team together, was the fact that this person was also a international rock star, was that just something else? 
well, you know, he, you know, he was the facilitator of that project, you know, so like I am facilitating all these other projects. So you start off like this and uh, yeah, of course, you know, this was an, another, you know, oddball campaign, so to speak. And I, I think I'm pretty famous for that, um, doing these weird and wonderful projects. But, uh, you know, when we started the whole thing, it was one of those things you couldn't ignore. You didn't know how it was going to end up. Uh, it could have been a total fiasco, even without the Fastnet capsize. But now, now like hang on, I've got to pause you there. I've got to pause you there because for anybody that's this memory is a little bit hazy here. I mean, this was uh, it was like less than two months, I think, before the start. You say, "Oh, it was a fast net capsized," but that doesn't really do it justice. I mean, this could have been pretty tragic. Just for anybody that's missing this little bit of their history books here, what are we talking about? Uh, yeah, okay. You know, we well. To go a bit back further, we bought a used maxi. Well, it wasn't wasn't used. It was an unfinished hull, uh, because this all started in January of the year before the '85 Whitbread race. And Simon and his partners, Mike and Paul Barrow, came along and said, "We want to do the Whitbread race." And it was decided pretty early on it had to be in a maxi for Simon's profile and not in something else. Um, and there were no maxis. You couldn't build one in the time. And so we looked at used maxis. And we did find an unfinished hull in uh, the West Country that was built for J Rob James, a famous uh, sailor who tragically died in a trimaran accident um, the summer before. And we inherited that boat. You know, we wound up with a boat launching, I think, in June and with a couple of months ahead of us to do the uh, Whitbread race. And so we started sea trialing the boat and racing in the Solent uh, and all that. And, um, and of course, the big tune-up event was the Fastnet race in 85. And off we went sailing uh, down the coast of uh, Cornwall and the, uh, make a long story short, <laughs> the keel snapped off uh, in 25 knots of breeze with number two and a couple of reefs. And, um, and the boat went upside down in 20 seconds. It was a catastrophic mechanical failure of an aluminum structure part of the keel. It was bolted onto the composite structure. And the boat went upside down with 24 people on board. And uh, luckily, nobody lost their lives. We were all rescued within about 40 minutes to an hour by a helicopter and uh, RNLI came, boat came out. And uh, Simon was trapped down below. He was sort of stuck in the boat with five other guys. When the boat went upside down, I managed to get out. It was basically every man for himself when the keel, when we heard this big bang and the boat just kept heeling over. You know, we thought did, it was a did you? Did you instantly yeah. know what the problem was? Did you think this is it? Well, it's killed. Instantly, you think it's the mast has gone when you hear something like that. But then the boat just kept going. It was already healed 15 degrees, and it wouldn't, you know, if the pop mast went, it popped straight up. So, you know, Phil Wade, I was, you know, he was uh, near the midship section, and he just shouted to everybody down below, "Just get out! Everybody out! Get out!" And it was every man for himself. And by the time I got to the companionway hatch from back in the nav shack in the in the back end water was pouring through the companionway and I was fighting upstream like a salmon trying to get out of there and just managed to get out as the whole thing went upside down and I was sort of just outside the rail of the boat as it came down. So it was, yeah, it was a very dramatic incident, very short-lived and luckily um, everybody was accounted for with a few hiccups. You know, we were trying to yell to the guys down below not to go out. And I remember Neil Cheston um, was counting the heads down below because we had 18 up on the upturned hull after everybody hoisted themselves out and he counted five, but he forgot to count himself. <laughs> and so we had 23, so we sort of assumed, shit, you know, we've got one guy missing um, and everybody was sort of panicking and then they did a recount 
and all 24 were accounted for. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, have, have a thought to if this would have happened six hours later, after we passed Land's End, it would have been night in the middle of the, you know, the RSC and, you know, it would have been a totally different outcome. Yeah, no, no doubt. You say that that campaign was a little bit late, or at least you got the boat a little bit later late. than you would Three have liked. Minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering, experiencing something like that and going through something like that, obviously it's not the way that you would like it to happen, but I imagine that after that, you're pretty you're pretty gelled to go through an experience like that as a team. You're, you've sort of, um, you know, it pulls you together. Yeah, it did. I mean, uh, you know, the Fastnet crew was not going to be the uh, the Whitbread crew because, you know, that was a less number of people on board. So, you know, we sort of, you know, consolidated into the Whitbread crew and everybody hung together. And we had six weeks to go from the capsize to the start of the race. And we had to rebuild the boat, you know, new keel, new rig, rig broke on the tow-in. Um, new electronics, new sails, everything was trashed. Uh, did, you, did, did you have to rebuild your confidence as well? Yeah, well, you know, we almost didn't have time to even think about those things. We were just headlong into getting to the start. And luckily, Simon and Mike and Paul did back that campaign with a lot of extra money because, you know, we had Simon's reputation riding on the line and not least, all, least of all our, all our own as well. And luckily, everybody stuck together. We got to the start and took off. Uh, we had some, you know, had some dramas on the leg one, as did the other, you know, five other maxis had structural problems getting into Cape Town. That's another story. But we, we did, you know, sort that out eventually and went around the world and got third. You know, we came very close to beating Peter Blake. He came second, Pierre Fellman first, Peter second. And we were, I don't know how many, 12 hours out of second all the way around the world after a few, few tricky moments. <laughs> so, so we were pretty, pretty happy with the, out, with the result. And, um, and, you know, it was a great team. And we just, you know, we, one of those things you stick together after all these years, we've had our, you know, re, last reunion in 2015 in Monaco. And uh, we're all still all in touch with each other. And it's, yeah, one of those things that you, it sticks, sticks with you forever, you know, camaraderie. Oh, I've been going down the rabbit hole of the videos on your website. Yeah. Yeah, you could spend a lot of time in quarantine doing that type of thing. Yeah, it's, it's, they're incredible. And um, you yeah. think when someone says, oh, we sail in ice, I think, okay, there's an iceberg and you can kind of see it. But there's images of you guys having to get out hammers and chisels and breaking ice that's kind of got frozen furling gear and drums and windlasses and all the rest of it. Absolutely incredible stuff. Have you ever had a point where you might be thinking, eh, I might be pushing this boat a little bit too far. Uh, well, the big boat is, I would say the big boat, we've always been in control, you know, so many lessons learned from 10 years with a little boat, but you know, the, the, probably the dodgiest time I ever had was with the little boat on the first year we went down there in 87, 88. Uh, I'll never forget it. You know, we wound up in um, uh, Maxwell Bay in, in um, South Shetlands up on the north part of the peninsula and we had to drop somebody off at the air base there and a huge gale came in two guys were ashore, they couldn't get back to the boat and we had to pull off the anchorage. And it was an easterly, big snowstorm, minus temperatures. And we spent the night um, motoring up and down an iceberg that was about half a kilometer long that was grounded inside the bay. And, you know, if the engine quit, we would have lost the boat. We would have washed up on the rock somewhere. And we just motored up and down in survival suits to, from one end of the iceberg to the other, turned the boat around and, you know, that, that was all night. Luckily, it was a short-lived, short, sharp 
storm, but by the morning when it calmed down, the boat was covered in four inches of ice. I mean, the whole thing was completely iced up and you know, you couldn't make sail, you couldn't do anything and it was obviously getting top heavy. And we luckily motored back and spent the whole day chipping out. And you know, that was a, probably the, you know, a, you know, one of those lessons learned early on in the game that stuck with me and yeah, you know. But in those days it was the same story, you know, weather reporting was very dodgy, you know, that today we'd see something like that coming back then, you know, we had a, yeah, we had a weather fax machine, but that's sort of an artist's impression of what may or may not happen at the time. And uh, yeah, we got caught out badly. Yeah. Interesting you sort of talk about, um, you, you're one of those wonderful people that are still out there doing it and out there in the elements at the moment. But of course, you started at a young age, like I say, you know, 25 when you did the the uh, the Whitbread, but you had plenty of selling before then. You've seen an awful lot of changes. One of the things that I wanted to um, ask you about, I mentioned Rick Tomlinson before, um, who's a you know photographer of of world note now. Um, we see so much stuff coming from the ocean race as the boats sail in these amazing places. Certainly with the uh, the high latitudes, you know, where you are there all this time, what can a, a photograph or an amazing drone shot, what can it just never convey? What are we still missing, those of us that only watch this from our, you know, armchairs? Um, well, I think nowadays the difference is, um, you know, when we went down there in the early days, and still very true in my boat when I go down south, is that, you know, we, we are sort of in our little boat in our cell alone, and we're not sending up media reports every five minutes, and we're not hooked up to, you know, the, the, the web and all the rest of it. So I think what they're missing today is a, is a bit of a solitude, which I think we enjoyed back when we did it, you know, and we, we were really out there and we had a lot of time, even though it was pretty, you know, balls out sailing and rugged and, you know, you still had time to think about things and conversations were not muted. They were not censored. You know, nowadays you have to be slightly careful of what you say and beam up Scotty up on the, to the satellite. Whereas back then, you know, we had a lot, probably more hijinks and probably a lot more off color conversations than you would now. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so it was more of a personal experience. Now you're really, everybody's pretty much stripped bare. Um, you know, if it's not live, it'll be in the recording. And, you know, yeah, I mean, that that's not my cup of tea. Let's put it that. <laughs> that's not why I go down there. Not why I went down there in the first place. But, uh, you know, I knew the value of getting things up to the media. I think it was one of the, I was one of the early guys in the Whitbreads that, you know, wrote a lot of articles. I knew how to talk to journalists. Uh, knew how to press the right buttons and that type of thing. And so I, I saw the value in all that and I saw how it had to go um, in order to raise money and commercialize the event. I mean, that was obviously the evolution that had to come. Uh, but sort of when it hit full force uh, as it is now, I took a step back and said, get on with it, guys. Go for your lives. <laughs> I was quite happy to. Because, you know. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you, you were... Um... You did mention uh, another time uh, something about uh, sending those articles from the boat oh, yeah. ba back at the time was was yeah. not like now where you hit send and the satellite dish just does it. This was a laborious process. Oh yeah, I mean the you know the the great story was you know I I did a deal with the Daily Telegraph and became a columnist during the whole Fazisi campaign, 
had to file 800 words to the newspaper every every week, you know, either onshore or on board. And of course, onshore is easy, uh, but you know, on board that was a whole nother thing. And this was now, you know, at the time when uh, Murdoch was trying to bust the print unions in London. And even though we had a uh, in Marsat Sea, and I could have sent, I could have sent that, you know, I typed in that story on the on the Telex in Marsat Sea system and sent it. I wasn't allowed to do that by the newspaper because it still had to be taken by a copy taker. You know, something like sort of antediluvian system where I had to call up on the HF radio, call up Porter's Head. You know, and of course, it was great, Porter's Head radio, because he sort of recognized the guy's voice and he recognized you. You got to know this guy at Porter's Head radio. It was fantastic. And you'd tune it in on 25 megahertz and you'd start, you call the newspaper on the phone line and then you get a copy taker. And this could be any time of the day or night. They got one there. So you'd start telling the story, the 800 words, and you're trying to, you know, spelling things out. And, of course, he knows nothing about sailing. So you're <laughs> trying to describe how you just did a Chinese jibe and everything went to hell, um, you know, make it interesting. And he's saying, can you repeat that? Can you repeat that? And in the middle of the article, the frequency goes down because time has changed. And you got to recall up on a different frequency, try to get the copy taker. And, of course, that guy went home. Start again with the other guy, you know, so sometimes this took hours of work to get that story out, you know, and all the time you're bombing along in the Southern Ocean in the nav shack, you know, up and down. <laughs> it was it was a hell of a game. Yeah. And and those boats that you were on, it, it does sort of feel like when I look back at the history books that they were the sort of turning point in that game. You had drum where people that had nothing to do with sailing were really interested in the exploits of this pop star at the height of his fame and so that they were drawn to the race so that there needed to be articles, there needed to be photographs. Uh, and I guess Fazizi as well, it was it was an unusual team representing yeah, a corner of the globe that had been, well, shall we say unrepresented. So it, it felt like those two teams were, were the sort of the catalyst for people realizing. Yeah, and you, and you have to out. add Tracy Edwards into that with Made in the Great Britain, absolutely. That was another thing. I think, those, yeah, those three boats transcended the, the yachting genre uh, to a great extent and put it in the mainstream media, um, you know, certainly with, with drum, with, with the capsize. And, you know, we had tabloids all over us, you know, in the, in the hotel in Falmouth after we were rescued. I remember Simon had to jump out of a first floor window to get out of there, you know, because he was being sort of, you know, assaulted by the tabloid hacks. And so you know, all these vignettes were fantastic. But yeah, that, that really did, I think, did lift the game for yachting a bit into general public, which I think everybody's benefited today to some extent, you know. Uh, definitely. I mean, it's, it's pulled in so many more fans of the race. And I think one of the other things as well, that one of those campaigns certainly did for ZZ, um, is one of the things that I think that sport does in general, but certainly this campaign did, which was bring the race to some people that otherwise wouldn't be involved with it, wouldn't be touched by it, and vice versa. I mean, having the Soviet Union involved at that time must have been, um, there's a political uh, heat that comes with that. Was that in any way factored into you getting involved with the team or, or indeed how it would function? Um, well, you know, that was another one of those things that when I got invited to go over to Moscow, uh, I was, you know, contacted out of the blue again. Um, you know, I think it was January or something. And Vladislav Mernikov, the designer, said, you know, we know all about you from the Whitbreads. And, 
you know, we're building a boat for the Whitbread and we'd like you to come over and get involved and help train the crew, you know. So it's one of those things you couldn't, you couldn't say no to. Um, and I said, yeah, that's a great idea. Send me an air ticket, you know. And uh, they said, mm, well, uh, we got a bit of a problem with currency. Can you fly yourself over and we'll reimburse you eventually? And of course I said, yeah, sure, you know. Okay, so I bought my air ticket. <laughs> you know, if that was, a, you know, thrown away, so what? And I went over there and how, and you, of course, when I went over there and met the people and they were all great, you get deeper and deeper into the project. Um, several visits to Moscow, all pre-Glasnost, pre-Perestroika. So I was very privileged to see Moscow in, in that old state, you know, of the real, real Soviet Union. My God, it was something. And uh, and then, of course, you wind up, uh, you know, skipping the boat in the end. But the whole progression was incredible where I went over there, eventually saw the boat after, the, I think, the second or third trip. And and I said, you know, the boat was an aluminum hull sitting in Poti in the Black Sea port there. And there was a Russian engine in there and nothing else, bare aluminum. They hadn't done anything else. And I said, well, what about everything else? And they said, oh, well, we, you know, we, we definitely have to get the rig and the sails from the west and everything else, the deck gear. And I said, well, how are you going to do that? They said, well, you know, we, they were hemming and hawing. And I said, look, you know, the, you're never going to make the start like this, trying to get all that stuff imported into Russia, if you can afford it, if you can get hard currency, which they didn't have. And uh, I said, my only solution is put this thing on a Russian ship, ASAP, get it over to the UK, and somehow we'll finish it or raise the money. At least you got a chance because people can see this thing. So they went back and thought about that that evening and uh, came back the next morning. They said, well, I think you're right. We're, that's what we're going to do. But we're going to fly the boat over, you know. Oh, yes. <laughs> decision, decision made within 24 hours. Uh, they got Antonov 124. And within a week or two, the boat was put on a, you know, on a barge down to Sukumi, trucked to the airport and put it in a, Antonov 124 with a sea freight container and 18 crew, including me, and we all flew to Kiev, Moscow, and eventually after some very tricky moments in Moscow, the guys got their passports at the last minute and off we went to Heathrow overnight, you know. So this is incredible, you know, and I was actually, in, in, you know, involved in all that story of, you know, on tender hooks with these 18 crew and my God, yeah, that was Amazing, amazing human story. You know, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it really feels it. like it. Yeah. Feel, I mean, it feels like the power of sport. I mean, you, what, what was it like being in the UK with the Soviet Union? You know, representing the Soviet Union. You know, being from there, which which would be about as foreign a land as someone can be from. Was it a team that was welcomed with just hey, you know, you're a you're a competitor. We're a competitor. You know, we're both people of the sea, we're going to sail together, or was there hostility? Oh, no, God, no. Oh, no. I mean, the, the, you know, the people in the South Coast, they just were totally enamored with the Soviets. And, and, and these guys were all, you know, good-looking guys, you know, intelligent and fun-loving. And every, everybody took to them, and they couldn't do enough to help the project. You know, and so we got, you know, I mean, a lot of help gratis, um, a lot of people start helping fit the boat out on spec without getting paid, hoping to be paid. So, yeah, that's how it all began. Totally goodwill. Um, and the funny thing was, you know, we tried to get uh, money from, uh, we got a little bit of money from Pepsi in the UK to get us through the summer. And I went over to, to New York with uh, Vladislav um, to, try to meet Pepsi uh, headquarters. 
to try to get the Americans involved and get our 1.8 million bucks to do the whole campaign at the time. And the Americans were interested, but then we got the word when we got back, no good because our we you know we surveyed our distributors and Soviet Union is just too sensitive being America. This is still Cold War stuff. And they put the thumbs down. And I think that was one of the biggest make mistakes they made because the whole Soviet Union collapsed while we were on the race. You imagine if they would have backed that thing, you know, <laughs> it would have been a huge winner for them. But, you know, so, when, you know, what the result was, we went from, you know, hand to mouth around the world. Uh, we never really had a budget. But, but just really interesting bringing together... Um... I mean, I know it's not all completely all on your shoulders, but but bringing together those two different worlds and things like that. And I understand that it's something that you're not, um, you know, you're not shy in doing now. I mean, you've been out doing expeditions down on Antarctica with um, bringing people together that would be political political enemies, you know, in, in, in one sort of sense. You know, you're still sort of involved with those kind of projects. Yeah, you're probably, you're probably referring to the one we did, uh, <clears throat> which is quite another one of these amazing stories of uh, uh, Palestinian-Israeli peace expedition we did in 2004 on my big boat, not not far after we launched it. I think it was the second, uh, no, it was the first big Antarctic trip we did in January, 2004. And that was a uh, culmination of a collaboration I had with an Israeli who'd been on Pelagic for two expeditions. He was a mountaineer, sort of like a Chris Bonington, Knox Johnson, all rolled into one total adventure guy. And uh, he and a German friend put together a project where the idea was to get a peace mission where you'd get four Palestinians, four Israelis uh, to sail across the Drake, go down to Antarctica and try to climb an unclimb mountain. That was the whole theme of the thing. And um, so, you know, we worked on that for about six months before and they got it all together and they got the funding from some part from the German government um, and some sponsors. And we had you know, a lot of high profile people backing this thing. And we went down there with these four Palestinians and, and the Palestinians, of course, had no experience of expedition sailing or expedition anything. The Israelis obviously did. And they got along, you know, got along great all the way down and in the Antarctic. And it was, and you know, they talked about politics across the table. And these weren't kids; these were not teenagers. These were middle-aged people. And one guy, uh, he was in his 60s. He was Yasser Arafat's fixer for many years. So these people all had histories. You know, uh, one guy was one Palestinian was 10 years in jail for blowing something up and another guy was in spent two years in jail for knifing somebody in the street and then we had an Israeli lawyer who was the guy who was putting those type of guys in jail you know so the conversations were incredible you know we were sort of witnessing all this as they were discussing politics in the zone but they and, all got and, along and you know was, there's nowhere to go know. on a boat like that is there I mean, nowhere to go that was the concept you know you're stuck there and um and anyway, anyway, what happened in the end, we, we did go ashore. We did a three-day camping trip pulling sleds and skis up a mountain to climb a little minor peak on a ridge. And uh, <clears throat> we got up to the, you know, got up to the peak and climbed the peak, and it was fantastic, and everybody was happy. And then the story, <laughs> the story ends by, the good part of it was, uh, they rolled out this huge peace flag that had been done by a very famous Israeli artist with doves on it and flowers and stuff like that. And 
Then the Israelis rolled out the Israeli flag, and then the Palestinians rolled out the Palestinian flag, and then they invited me to sit for the summit photo as well as the leader. And we're all there together, and then all of a sudden the Israeli lawyer, he sort of looks at the whole thing, uh, because the flag was signed by, you know, Gorbachev, Dalai Lama, some German minister, um, uh, Sharon, um, and Yasser Arafat. And he says, well, guys, I'm sorry, but I can't be in the photograph because Yasser Arafat signed the flag. Imagine this is on top of a mountain in Antarctica when the whole thing collapsed in, into a, a, a complete depression. And, you know, yeah, and it was sort of like a, you know, it was a, you know, it was an example of, you know, every peace mission ends like this, it seems, you know, you, you try to, you work towards it. And then in the end, nothing, everybody walks away or somebody walks away. So on the way back, everybody, you know, was fairly down and out about it. And then they got along in the end, it was fine. But, you know, it was like a big downer. <laughs> yeah. Having done this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but you know, we had a media team, you know, we had journalists with us. We had a satellite technician because we were sending stories to CNN uh, about this project, you know, it was a big, high-profile project. You know, and we had uh, mountain guides, and you know. But the, I think that I think the interesting thing there, and I mean, politics is an awfully long way from what I'm qualified to talk about on the Offwatch series. But what's interesting there is um, they still sailed that distance as a team. You know, I, I'm guessing that on a boat like that, in conditions like that there aren't any passengers. I mean, you know, when no, you do your tours to. down there, people, no yeah. matter what happens, people need to get involved because you need the crew. Yeah, no, they all had to, they all had to stand to watch and they all pitched in and helped cook and run the boat and all that sort of thing. That was the concept. And, uh, and, and also, you know, the reason the idea was going to Antarctica, because every time you do a, one of these peace missions in any other country, there's always a political, you know, twist to it, depending on the country you're in. Whereas Antarctica was perfect because it's non-sovereign territory. And that was one of the things that's totally neutral ground. That was the ultimate neutral ground going to Antarctica. How has it changed in the 30 years that you've been living down there? Uh, well, you got two aspects to it. One is the, the climate change, which is change of features. Um, you know, I camped on a glacier in 2002 on a mountaineering expedition. And now that glacier, now it's ocean. And that, that thing has receded by something like about six, seven kilometers uh, when I first came down to where it is now. I mean, there's nothing left of it. Um, and you see that a lot of that, uh, especially on South Georgia, Antarctic Peninsula, the same changes of features are dramatic. You know, where once it was an ice cliff, now it's a laid back uh, sort of sl snow slope, a lot more shorelines showing and consequently, some wildlife uh, does better, some does worse because of these changes. So that's that's a very evident and that's well known. Uh, the other big change, uh, which is you know, uh, which was not inevitable but force of marketing, was the uh, tourism side, which is dramatic explosion uh, in the 30 years I've been there. I think in the first year I went there, the you know, tourism goes back to the 70s, even the 60s with Lindblad Explorer. You know, handful of people on a special ship going down in the Antarctic. Lars Lindblad, and slowly that sort of creeped up, and the early 90s uh, was still 1,000 people on cruise ships in the Antarctic, maybe 1,500, and then why that exploded was, was another consequence of uh, perestroika, because you wound up with a whole fleet of ex-Russian Academy of Science vessels being 
seconded by clever entrepreneurs from the states, Europe and Australia, and they made you know lease agreements with the for the for these ships for peanuts plus including the deck crew and the and the staff, um, and they started Antarctic tourism in a big way on these you know with ships which were you know ice strengthened fit for purpose, uh, small expedition ships, anywhere from 50 passengers up to 100. And that's how it all began. So the numbers we're seeing now, I think last year we had, before the COVID, I think 75, almost 80,000 tourists uh, going down to Antarctica, and 98% of those were shipborne on ships. And you have a you know small contingent of yacht-borne and a small contingent of air ops, uh, deep field stuff. Um, so yeah, and that is that has put pressure on the Antarctic environment, and it's the biggest single topic in the Antarctic Treaty Forum, no doubt, how to manage tourism growth, and certainly the sing, single big, biggest topic in the Antarctic Tour Operators Association, which I'm a member of and spent five years on the executive committee of that thing uh, recently, and you know, self-regulatory body about how to make rules for ourselves that will be accepted by the Antarctic Treaty which are still manageable to conduct tourism. And that's getting harder and harder to achieve purely by the strength of numbers coming down. Of course, the COVID now wiped the whole thing out this year. Nobody's gone down. So, but that, you know, ship companies will go out of business, but that will then, uh, when things get back to normal, hopefully, that will ramp up again and quickly climb back up to those heights, I would say, probably in five years' time. What what do you have to do? Um, Because we talk a lot about, we talk a lot about the teams sailing through the Southern Ocean and sailing around the world. And, you know, the, the teams have rightly decided that they need to be very concerned with the impact that they're having um, when they're racing on the water and, you know, before and after. What do you have to do in that part of the world with the way you operate in order that you have as minimal negative impact as possible? Oh yeah, no, we have a, we have a, uh, I wish I could show you a picture of our, uh, it's now all online now, but when the last hard copy version was probably about, I don't know, 10 inches high of paperwork from the Tour Operators Association and the Antarctic Treaty that uh, rules and regulations and guidelines and all sorts of things, biosecurity is a big thing now. Um, yeah, it's massive. Massive and permitting systems for you know for every uh, nationality of ships and planes you have to get a permit. We we work through the foreign office in the UK. So you know when I first went down there was nobody to ask to go down to Antarctica. You could pretty much do what you like. Uh, not that we ever really did anything malicious, but we had a ball down there. And nowadays there's eyes everywhere. If you put a foot wrong, somebody will have photographed you. You know somehow, and that's reported back. <laughs> And I could be prosecuted under British law, uh, part of the Antarctic Act, I think, of 2013. Now is under legislated, and you know, for doing anything wrong, like uh, environmental, um, um, you know, issue, or not getting a permit in the first place, or anything like this, or disturbing wildlife. <clears throat> and uh, so it's all gotten very serious, very regulated, and it had to because of the, as I said, the tourism growth numbers. So it's very different. So I spend a lot of my time um, on paperwork, permitting, keeping up with all the changes which happen yearly and throughout the year as things change in the, in the environment, you know, different initiatives and, and you know, tour operators now down there, it's all educational-based tourism. 
So you have to have a quotient of that in your whole, uh, you know, your brochures and your itineraries and that type of thing. It's basically educating people. If you bring them down there, you've got to educate them so when they go away, they know a little bit more about it and get a better appreciation for things like climate change and environment. How, how much does the um, how much does the does the area itself take care of that? I mean, how much of an impact? does it have on people to just go down there and see it and learn those lessons that, you know, we've got to look after it? No, I think it has a big impact. Um, and, uh, you know, we've gotten a lot of feedback, uh, a lot of donations to various organizations that are doing science down there via the tourship uh, contingent from the companies and from the tourship clients. Just wondering in terms of you and your experiences for all those years, you know, multiple decades, have there been any wildlife encounters, whales or whatever, that, that you still sort of, you can still feel kind of, you know, make your hairs on the back of your neck stand up? What's been the sort of standout moment? Oh, we are the many, many. I mean, you know, we, when we go down, uh, people say to us, oh, if, if we go down, will we see whales in the Antarctic? And yes, well, that's something you can pretty guarantee you'll see hundreds of humpback whales. And sometimes they come up right next to the boat and bubble feed, bubble net, um, you know, right there. You're looking right down on top of them. And yeah, it, it's amazing. And it happens all the time. And so we have you know, a lot of memories of that. And then, of course, on South Georgia, you know, things like skiing down around and through the penguin colony after a long ski traverse, you know, and you're skiing down through these hundreds of thousands of king penguins, not right through the colony, you have to go around <laughs> the colony. Obviously, that's the way, way to do it. So you don't disturb them. But you're in amongst these, you know, God, almost a half a million penguins. And, you know, your boat's waiting out for you on the and the anchorage there, and you've come down and you ski right to the shore and then the dinghy comes in. I mean, you know, stuff that's, yeah, no place else you can do this, you know, and nobody else around. You know, we go down in South Georgia in September, you know, we're the only vessel on the island. Uh, it's pre-cruise ship season. It, it, feels like, it feels like the big thing that you've been able to do um, that a lot of the sailors in, in the races past have not been able to do is slow down. And you've been able to, you know, sort of drop anchor and explore the land down there and everything. For anybody that, that might be watching this and is going to be doing the next edition of the race or future editions of the race, and they are going to come hurtling through this part of the world. And I know that it always leaves an impression on people, but is there a way for that you could say to people, make sure you see this, make sure you look at that, make sure you take this moment in even though you're going to go through it at breakneck speed, you know, you won't want to miss it. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think they do. I think they all appreciate being down there. And, you know, I've had, I've actually had a couple of my old Whitbread mates go with me on trips, uh, you know, as extra crew when needed, um, you know, dying to go down. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of the sailors I talk to, they, they always ask me about it and they always express a wish. Um, I had Thomas Colville in Cape Town after his first failed attempt well, on that Atlantic trimaran um, uh, run and he came into Cape Town and we had a long chat and he's dying to go down with us at some point, you know, in his career. <laughs> he's very busy. Uh, but yeah, they all, they, they would all like to do what I'm doing. I would say it's, uh, yeah, it's the same spirit um, of going around the world as exploring these places. And I think, yeah, a lot of these guys will do that for sure. Um, 
I had a couple of questions sent to me actually before we were doing this interview and you reminded me because you just mentioned catamarans. So I just want to fire a couple of these questions because I thought they were really good. One person was asking, um, and this is in a reference to your um, pelagic boats, you know, Australis and, and, and your original yeah. boats. Um, would you ever consider building a large expedition catamaran? And I thought it was an interesting question because, of course, you've done the uh, on Innovation Explorer. You raced around the world on a multi-hull boat. Um, in terms of sort of exploring down there and being in the Southern Ocean, how does it compare being on a monohull, albeit a maxi, to then being down through those kind of high latitudes on a multi-hull? Would it would it work the same way? Well, not 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 for what we do. Not for poking around inshore, uh, getting involved in ice conditions. Uh, that's you know, there's been a few plastic catamarans who've been down to the Antarctic, and they've all had major issues. And uh, so not recommended. I mean, certainly for you know tropics, uh, that the catamaran is the only way to go. You have <laughs> an expedition ship in the tropics doing research or tourism or whatever, you know, that's a no-brainer. Uh, but for down there, a catamaran, I think, is a liability um, in terms of, you know, you're sailing in very tight, narrow channels. You've got catabatic winds. Uh, you've got brash ice all over the place. I think, you know, you'd have more hassle trying to get from A to B and out of B to get back to A. And, you know, just, yeah. Every, yeah, we get asked the question all the time. I mean, uh, you know, I'm thinking about building, a, you know, an aluminum 70-foot catamaran. What do you think? And I said, yeah. Think again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, another question then. Uh, something that you will have seen, not my, not necessarily from your racing uh, side, but certainly when you were doing the, um, the Whitbread back in the day, um, it was predominantly male sailors. I mean, you mentioned uh, Maiden, but realistically that was a rarity. It was male sailors. With a lot of the sailing that you're doing at the moment where you're taking scientific expeditions or mountaineers or stuff like that, um, do you find that there's any difference now in terms of seeing more females on board your boats? And do you sort of think, ah, do you know what, we could have had we could have had a you know 50-50 mixed crew back when we were doing the races in you know the 70s and 80s. It would have been perfectly viable. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, I don't want to get into that debate because I got you know in trouble on one of the on one of the article I wrote some long time ago for Yachting World about that whole subject. Um, you know, sailing on the big IOR maxis back in the day, uh, you have you would have had to have been a pretty special, r robust, strong big female to probably getting myself in trouble big time already <laughs> who have coped with the loads and carrying the sails around. It was backbreaking. You know, I mean, um, the boats today, sails are lighter. Boats are easily driven faster. Um, you're sailing on the leading edges of fronts. I mean, you know, back in the day we were passed over by the weather. So we had more squalling, more sail changes, no doubt. You know, it was in that respect, much more difficult sailing, even though we we're going a lot slower. Because we were going slower, we had more more sail changes. Um, nowadays, nowadays it's different, and I mean certainly, you know, where we sail in the Antarctic, I had a female skipper on my little boat in 1995. I've had a female skipper. She's actually doing the Golden Globe race. The only female entry, actually, Kirsten Neuschaffer. She's been skippering pelagic for the last uh, two three years, and she's been on my big boat as well as a mate. And she's up in Canada now getting her little Cape George 36 fitted out. Um, 
So yeah, um, you know, obviously we have, uh, you know, you always normally on my boat, we have a skipper and a partner, um, male and female partner running the boat, plus another nipper, young Rambo type, can be a girl or a boy on board, crew of three. Yeah, so we are, we are absolutely um, gender uh, friendly, I would say. <laughs> and um, lastly, one other question that we got sent. It was, it was a query about your name. And I'm not sure whether the person who asked the question um, has a loaded interest, but basically asking about Novak being a typical uh, Czech name. I'm wondering whether you had any roots there, considering that in the sort of... Um, uh, you know, yachting is quite popular on, on terms of the, the seashore down there and all the rest of it. I'm wondering whether you had any kind of history down there. Uh, no, I mean, you know, my grandparents came over after the turn of the century, way back, uh, Czech on the one side and German on the other. And uh, I, I remember them speaking with broken accents as a young kid in Chicago, but my parents were totally American and they basically forgot about the old country and I never thought about it uh, too much. So, yeah. Yeah, but Novak, you know, Novak is like Smith. It's a, the, the 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 meaning is is new. Is actually Novak sort of means new, and it's you know if you look in a phone book, uh, you know, in some place in Chicago, there will be thousands of Novaks because a lot of checks went to Chicago area for sure, Midwest. I lastly, then I know that you are. Um... I know that you're you know you're in quarantine. You know you're stuck in a hotel, but I don't want to use up all of your time, so. Lastly, is a point. It's fascinating to hear you. It's fascinating to hear you talk about um, what it's like being on the water and experiencing everything um, in the Southern Ocean. Like I said at the beginning, a part of the world that most people don't want to go or certainly want to leave. When you are now in your hotel room, itching to get back out there. What's the the sound and the sights and the smells maybe? What is that thing that you just, you can feel pulling you back to that ocean more than anything else? Uh, I think it's, you know, for me, it's fresh air. And, you know, I don't go well in warm weather. So I love fresh, cold air on my face and breathing, you know, lungfuls of fresh, cold air. And it invigorates me. It energizes me. I, you know, I, I go sort of dead in hot weather. I just want to lay out like a bloody salamander and, and, this, and I can't do anything, you know, totally useless. So yeah, it, it's a, it's a climatic thing for me. And, 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 and once again, for me is, you know, there's nothing feeling better than motoring out to the, the heads in charge of your own boat, heading off for a project. I mean, that's the happiest feeling in the world for me. I think for any skipper, um, you know, when you when you actually cast off and you've started a project that you've been planning for a long time and it's all coming to fruition, past all the hurdles and uh, off you go. And it's a, you know it's a, you know it's a liberty and a freedom and uh, in in the grandest sense I think. Oh, Skip, thank you very much for talking us through what makes you so passionate about it. Thanks very much. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode and keep an eye open on our social media channels where we'll be announcing our future guests and you can submit the questions that you want to get answers to. If you enjoyed this, then subscribe for many more and we'll see you in the future.